Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to the Pittsburgh Oratory School of Christi. And we're picking up with our reflection on Romano Guardini's meditations before Mass. And uh, if you remember from last month, Guardini has begun to reflect with us upon the, uh, the Word of God, especially as it is present to us uh, within the Mass itself. And he starts out, in fact, his reflection tonight saying it, that the scriptures really permeate the whole of the Mass. So if we were to stop, slow down, and pull the Mass apart, we would see direct, the direct references uh, uh, to scripture or direct quotations or some r reference to scripture in some manner or fashion. In fact, uh, Scott Hahn, one of the great uh, converts of our day uh, from Protestantism, said one of the first times he went to Mass was the, the uh, it was, was this fact that struck him the most, just how much he was hearing of the scriptures within the Mass itself. And as one who uh, had been immersed in the scriptures, uh, I think he studied to be a Protestant minister, or was a Protestant minister, that uh, he was quite surprised by this. He never thought as, scripture, as Catholics being uh, immersed in the scriptures, and yet here in our uh, the center of our worship uh, was filled with, with scripture references. And so Guardini begins with discussing that with us tonight. Last week, in a f last week oh, sorry, last month, if you remember, it was word is revelation. So we looked at how uh, God speaks to us in particular through the scriptures, not just in the transmission of information, but rather uh, a proclamation of something of his own self to us. So there's something life-giving in the word that is proclaimed to us. And if we open our minds and our hearts, if we prepare the soil of our hearts to receive that word, it will bear great fruit in our lives. And tonight he switches his focus to the liturgy of the Eucharist, in particular how the word, how, how the mass is, uh, is permeated with the scriptures, in, especially in the words of consecration themselves, and how that is done in particular in the mass and what that means for us. Uh, this is in, certainly an exhaustive reflection. We still have about 20 more of these meditations to go through, and most of those will be on the liturgy of the Eucharist itself. But uh, this is how, in particular, though, the words of consecration are tied to the scriptures, both in the Synoptic Gospels, but also in Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians. And so that's what we'll be looking at this evening. Uh, but as always, we start the School of Christi with an uh, uh, opening hymn. And tonight we'll appropriately be singing O Sacrament Most Holy and the opening cover. Just a reminder, Romano Gordini was a priest who wrote in the 1940s. And so he's writing again prior to the Second Vatican Council, which uh, is always worth reminding ourselves of when we read through his text because it seems like it is something that is meant for us in particular, that it proclaims, I think, what the Council desired us to do, which was, is to seek to understand what it is that we are doing as Roman Catholics, especially in our celebration of the Mass, the source and the summit of our faith. And so we do well to reflect upon every part uh, of the Mass, which is exactly what Guardini does within this book. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, he has been reflecting with us upon the, the Word of God. Last month, the Word is revelation, and tonight the Word as executory Word, and as it is manifest especially within the words of consecration. And some uh, really beautiful thoughts here tonight, I think, uh, some of it will be eye-opening for, for many of us, I think, uh, 
just the nature of his insights, how penetrating they are and appropriate for us. Uh, as is always, the red italicized print is just my uh, little preparatory remarks. The Word of God permeates the whole of the Mass and can be found nearly in nearly all the solemn moments of the liturgy. Of particular note is the moment of consecration. Here the words spoken take on a special trait. They are spoken directly to God, Guardini note, and Guardini notes, the word becomes the living present. What was once spoken by Christ is spoken anew, not as a new word issuing from the hour and consequently passing away with it, but as the old Christ-spoken word renewed and become part of this hour. The memorial does not consist in the congregations remembering what the Lord once spoke to his apostles, but in making his words alive and concretely effective. What Christ accomplishes through these words that differs from all the other prayers of the liturgy is the laying of the foundation for a new creation. These words are the equals of those that once brought about the existence of the universe. The priest utters the words, but it is Christ who speaks. It is to this great mystery that we must bring all the, our, all the faith our hearts can muster. So already, uh, just a little uh, preview of what he's going to say here, but that the uh, the laying of the foundation of a new creation, that the word that is spoken in the act and uh, the act of consecration of the holy species is like creation itself, that God creates out of chaos, and in this word spoken uh, over the, the, the host and the wine, that a new creation comes about for us, that we are able to participate in the very life of God and receive that life into our very being. We become a new creation by what Christ establishes upon the altar. And it is Christ himself who is bringing this about in and through the actions uh, of the priest, but it is Christ who speaks through him and acts through him. And it's also here that I think we get a, an insight into also the beauty of the priesthood and the mystery that it is. and. Uh, why such focus should be given, uh, I think, to the formation of priests, that they might understand the glory in which they participate uh, on a daily basis, uh, that we would have this as the center uh, of our lives as priests, and everything would revolve around it. And certainly for all of us as Catholics, that our life would move from Eucharist to Eucharist, that if we understand things as Gordini is articulating them, then we understand that Christ is doing something extraordinary for us. He's remaking us, he's recreating us through the gift of himself in the Eucharist. And uh, so let's move on to what Gordini says to us. And we'll stop as always, we'll treat this as kind of a group lexio. And I'll stop after each paragraph or so and open it up for questions or comments. The Word of God permeates the whole Mass, as it also fills the entire liturgy. Some of its parts, like the Epistle and Gospel, or the Our Father, spoken at the most solemn moments, are larger unbroken passages taken bodily from Scripture. Introit, Offertory, Collects, consist of sentences selected from various biblical books to highlight the significance of the day in question. So all the prayers that we use um, 
are, are taken from the scripture, including our Father, but also parts of the collects are, are taken from the scripture itself that uh, tie us to the feast that is being celebrated or to the readings that are being reflected upon that day. The same is true of the gradual and the tract texts which link the epistle and the gospel. Finally, in the actual prayers, words from or references to the preceding scriptural quotations return again and again to fortify the whole of their sacred with their sacred power. So the church in its worship is placing its trust in the power of the scriptures themselves, the power of the word of God, uh, to transform us both in the hearing of the word, uh, but also as we will see in what these words uh, accomplish at, at the altar. We are transformed uh, in many ways. And so just as we cannot hear the word of God as simply a, a transmission of information, but are meant to open our minds and our hearts to receive it in such a way uh, that we allow it to tr transform us at the deepest part of our being, uh, to trans transform the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we act. Uh, so we are to uh, receive this word of God. It is made flesh at, at the altar and to reflect upon that consecration that takes place, not something that is past history, but a mystery that is made present to us in the here and now, uh, that this word is something living and effective uh, concretely for us in the Mass. At the heart of the Mass, he says, the consecration, the word of the Lord, assumes a special character, following the offertory in which the bread and wine are prepared for the sacred feast is the most important prayer of all, the canon of the Mass, so the Eucharistic prayer. After the quam oblationum, the church's final prayer over the gifts, gift offerings, we have the words, who the day before he suffered took took bread into his holy and venerable hands, and with his eyes lifted up to heaven unto thee, O God, his almighty Father, giving thanks to thee, he blessed, broke, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat ye all of this, for this is my body. In like manner, after he had supped, taking also this excellent chalice into his holy and venerable hands, and giving thanks to thee, he blessed and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and drink ye all of this, for this is the chalice of my blood, of the new and eternal testament, the mystery of faith, which shall be shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins. As often as you shall do these things, you shall do them in remembrance of me. The words are taken from the gospel reports and from the first epistle of the Corinthians, to the Corinthians, like the original epistle and gospel text. They seem to repeat only more impressively what took place at that time. But when we look closely, we notice light shifts in the wording. Not only does the priest, by reading the biblical account, relate what took place, he also does it himself. His words are no longer merely the biblical and giving thanks. They become, and with his eyes lifted up to heaven unto thee, God, his almighty Father, giving thanks to thee, God is actually being addressed. And while the priest says, took bread, he actually picks up the host lying there, bowing his head at the word thanks. Thus the decisive sentences, for this is my body, 
And for this is the chalice of my blood of the new and eternal testament, the mystery of faith which shall be shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins. Acquire a new character. So Guardini would have us slow down and recognize the fact that there's a shift here, that the words that are being spoken are being directed to the Father, that it is Christ himself who's speaking in the person uh, of the priest. And so all attention at that point is directed towards the Father and uh, towards what's taking place at the altar. And I mentioned once here before, my first, one of my first Masses at the Oratory, that this is, was the thing that was the most striking for me about the, the Catholic Mass and Catholic worship was the intensity of the focus of the priest, but also the congregation that takes place at that moment. Uh, unlike anything that I had experienced before, that everybody was focused upon what was going on at the altar and the words that were being spoken. And as a, as a body there, they were united as one in what was taking, taking place at the altar. And this is what Guardini is, is emphasizing for us, that we might see that there's something unique about the word that is spoken, is spoken here and what is being accomplished. The whole passage, he goes on to say, moves from the past into the present, from the report to the act. It is no longer a pious memorial. It has become a living reality. At the consecration of the chalice, we were being prepared for something extraordinary, mysterium fide, mystery of faith. In the early church, while the priest softly spoke the words which established the Eucharist, the deacon raised his voice and reverently called out, Take heed, the mystery of faith. It is in this sense that we must receive the Lord's words. But the full significance of their springing into life is the clearest in the final sentence. As often as you shall do these things, you shall do them in remembrance of me. So in all that the church is doing, it's, it's calling us to be ever more attentive to what is be, being spoken, but also what is taking place at that moment at the altar. Something extraordinary is taking place. Take heed of the mystery of faith in which you're being called to participate and into which you are being drawn by the very words that you hear now spoken before you. That it is not a passive kind of participation that we are, are called to uh, engage in at that moment, but something ever so active. Our listening has to uh, be mustered in such a way that we allow ourselves to be drawn in as fully as possible. So everything that Guardini has spoken ab about over this past year and that we've reflected upon must come into play, especially at this moment for us. The, com the silence, the composure, the deep listening, that he first spoke about. Everything that we do to prepare ourselves from, for the Mass, then we begin to see the fruit of that now by our capacity to enter into what's, going, what's taking place and going on at the, at the altar. In the same way that we were listening to the Word of God uh, being proclaimed, that we prepare ourselves for that reality and to receive that Word, not simply at that moment, but what takes place and the entire day leading up to the celebration of the Mass. So we would prepare ourselves by going to confession, that there would be no impediment to our receiving that word and hearing it in all of its fullness. 
And in the same way, we would go to confession to prepare ourselves now to receive what uh, is given to us at the, at the holy altar. Uh, we prepare ourselves through, through prayer, through meditating upon the scriptures, but also for reflecting upon uh, the mystery that God is calling us to, to participate in and also what we become. And so we begin to reflect upon our life more and more deeply. Are we living in accord with the mystery that we are now preparing ourselves to celebrate? Are we becoming and have we become what we, re we receive? Uh, tomorrow's gospel is a very powerful one. The Father and I are one. And uh, we are told from the Gospel of John that love breeds unity. And we see this expressed most fully in the Eucharist. We become one with Christ. We become one with God. We begin to share fully in that life. But this is also to be something that's transformative for us, that the love that we receive in the Holy Eucharist is also the love that we are to bear witness to in our, in our lives and in our actions. And again, everything that Guardini is saying here is meant to heighten that reality for us. But is there anything that he said so far? Yes. Um, so maybe it'll get touched on later on. Um, but I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around um, the Eucharist as the new creation. Um, and so, like, are we becoming new every time we receive it? Or um, I guess if you could like expand on that a little bit, I, it's, it's a little confusing to me um, as Eucharist is new creation. Well, he's making an allusion, obviously, here to creation itself, that out of chaos, God spoke his word and creation comes into being. And in a similar way, we are renewed, we are made new through the actions of the new Adam, as it were. That God speaks his word and the, the word becomes flesh for us, but also becomes our very food and drink. And we are able to be then transformed through receiving this, this great gift. And so literally we are made into new beings. We're united to Christ and we begin to participate in his life. And the more that we participate in that reality, the more that we are transformed by it. That we certainly know the forgiveness of our, our sins through, uh, through uh, say, our going to confession. But we still know the effects of those sins, the, the weakening that they, they bring to us. And so it is through our receiving of the Eucharist uh, at the altar again and again that we are st strengthened and renewed in our life in Christ. Uh, and also find the strength and the grace to engage in the spiritual battle more fully, that we might be conformed more and more fully into Christ's image, that we might put on his mind more and more fully by becoming one through him, with him in and through, the, through, in and through the sacrament. So there is a sense that we are being, being made anew every time we receive the Holy Eucharist, that in some way we fall short of living that reality in all of its fullness, even after, after having received it. And uh, God knows this and in His great mercy offers us the means of forgiveness if we fall away greatly through the sacrament of confession, but in and through the Eucharist itself, this is the ordinary means through which our, our sins are forgiven. So those sins of weakness that we commit, all of these things are uh, 
are forgiven and we are transformed and again we are, are given everything that we need to live the fullness of life in Christ through the gift of the Holy Eucharist. And uh, it's for this reason I think that it should never be entered into uh, as, as lightly as we often do as Catholic Christians. I think there should be this sense of awe that we have and bring to our celebration of the Eucharist, that we are given to participate in the very life of God. And on one, light, in one, on one level that should shine a light on how we've been living our life, revealing to us the ways that perhaps we've fallen short of that love, but also hold out to us again the mercy of God and what he's called us to, which is deification, to participate in the very life of God in and through our union and communion with Christ. And so long as we are in this world, we fall short of that reality. And it's for this reason that God in his mercy has given us this gift that we might be renewed and restored uh, in his image and likeness. Mm -hmm. yes. Father, uh, what year were you ordained? 1955, no, not, <laughs> just feels that way. Uh, 1994. Now, was that uh, after Pope Benedict renewed the uh, liturgical, the books and all? You mean after, I'm not quite following you, until he's... Were you saying the Novus Ordo and then... Always from my ordination. It's only been since then that Pope Benedict made it possible said that every priest at any time could say the extraordinary form of the Mass, that no special permission is needed. No, what I was thinking of was the importance of the words and the words of Christ in Scripture. And then when you think of that Scripture about not one jot or tittle to be changed, mm -hmm. yet when he made the changes in the liturgical uh, books and all, and when that changed from many to all, and then back to many. I just wondered if that had to have such a great significance when that was renewed again oh. to the original for priests that had been saying mm -hmm. the note, you know, the new mass right. with, after he made those changes. I think that, it, to be honest, that it has been a great concern for, for many Catholic Christians, theologians, you know, liturgists. Was that all time. ecumenical? force that brought that about. I You're going to drag me down, down that road, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Well, partly. You know, I think, you know, the council started To be off. more inclusive. Well, no, I don't think so. No. I think the, the council was doing exactly, uh, or wanted at least uh, what we've been trying to do here, which is to open up our understanding of the Mass and why it is that we do it, as well as the rest of our traditions as Catholic Christians. And so it was hoped uh, by a return to the sources, Scripture as well as the spiritual tradition, that we would be able to uh, not only understand what it is that we're doing, but enter into it more and more fully. But the problem was that the, the Council uh, many would argue never achieved that end, that what we found was simply a casting off of long-held tr traditions and practices going back 
you know, more than a millennia, and a, or a millennia and a half, some would argue, and that what we found instead was this kind of experimentation. And worst of all, an experimentation with the liturgy itself, that which is at the heart of our, our, our faith and our practice of the faith. And so many feel that there's been a diminishment uh, because of that. And some would argue, well, okay, that there was an ecumenical aspect to this, that you know, somehow that this would open up uh, the practices of, uh, of Catholics to the understanding of others, that it would you know, bring about a deeper dialogue. And I think what we've seen is a kind of syncretism uh, seep into the life of, of many believers that you know sort of a gathering of parts of and practices of various faiths and putting those on equal footing or there's a mixture within our Catholicism of, of various practices Protestant and Catholic and that there's a been a diminishment of reverence uh, uh, in the celebration of the liturgy a diminishment in our faith in the real presence of Christ because of it so there has been a, a strong concern about that, that there wasn't uh, a renewal of the liturgy that took place, but a diminishment of it. And I think what Pope Benedict XVI was seeking to do was to reinstitute the place of the extraordinary form of the Mass in order that it might raise us back up again in terms of our understanding of the liturgy and also the, the reverence that had been present there and that ideally that each parish would have both, I think, and that there would be an elevation, it was hoped, of, of the uh, practice of, of the Novus Ordo in the process. But e even with his uh, counsel, that wasn't embraced, that often the, the Latin Mass is limited to one place within a diocese, and so, you know, even though the participation in that is growing and that I know for a fact that a lot of younger priests are learning how to say the ex extraordinary form, that it's not uh, being able to be practiced as freely as many would, de would desire. Jim. Yeah, I think to, to, uh, to her specific point about the words for many or for all, right. it had to do with the updated translations of, right. even of the Novus Ordo in the Latin, it would have been consistent right. from the ancient form to the form. Right. Oh, okay. But in the English translation, right. the original ISIL said for all. Right. And that was very That was the thing. Yeah, that was you the know. thing that was problematic in people's yeah. eyes. So we're actually, that's what I had actually more than gone back to about more. All right. That's the, the words Christ said, the word Christ said. Yeah. Yeah. So the so the the improved translation. Which was under Benedict the Sixteenth, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, okay, I, I see what you were saying now. It was, it was, a, it mm -hmm. was much more faithful All right. to the Latin. All right. Okay. And I saw yes. Quick question about looking over the the words of consecration. I guess this is, would be from the old missal, mm -hmm. where it says where the mystery of faith is inserted mm -hmm. into that uh, the, the words from the scripture. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering why was it. Like sort of move to the end because uh, you know in. Uh, you mean the words, the mystery of faith. Yes, and then there's the memorial acclamation. Now we say Christ has died. Christ will come, and I've sort of found that a little confusing. Like if Christ is physically present, like you know. Right. See, I'm just wondering why they moved it. Yeah. 
Well, that's a good question, to be honest with you. I think many feel that there was a loss of a sense of what was being proclaimed there. You know, Guardini points us back to an even more ancient time where the deacon you know, sort of proclaims this in a very powerful way so as to draw the attention of the people to what was, what was taking place there. Behold the mystery of faith and what is made present in and through it. And so with, you know, within the Novus Order, there is a, a shifting there as well as then a response to that, which I think many feel that it's sort of out of place or even disrupts the flow of the liturgy there. I don't know, Father Ken, you have a better sense of the old, old well, liturgy. Well, even, even in this old uh, form of the liturgy that he refers to, mm -hmm. while the deacon was saying mm -hmm. the mystery of faith, the priest was still saying that right. in the words of consecration. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people found uh, what, when the Pope Paul VI made those uh, liturgical changes in the 60s, mm -hmm. a lot of people uh, said, why are you altering the very mm -hmm. words at the heart of the Eucharist? Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, there was a lot of consternation mm -hmm. about that. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you know, part of the reason that we're doing this is to reflect upon that ourselves, although Guardini here is trying to focus upon the, the word and the power of the word within the consecration itself. So I don't think it was his uh, intent to sort of explore this, but uh, I, I know we wouldn't get around it. We haven't <laughs> for, for a year. But uh, they're, they're good questions. And I think partly by going back and reflecting upon somebody even writing before the council and emphasizing what he does emphasize helps us to reflect upon, okay, why, why were the changes made? And you know, is there something significant about that? And is there even a loss to us in that that we need to regain? And, and it can be found for us, you know, certainly within the extraordinary form. And uh, we'll see where, where that goes here in the future. But so far, it's been a rather rocky, rocky start. But the beauty of how through the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ, you know, will never forsake us. Behold, mm -hmm. I make all things new mm -hmm. was one of the things he said too, but yet he's there to guide it back. And I just feel we really owe you know, a lot of right. thanks to the Holy Trinity and a Pope like Benedict that brought it back to right. yeah. where it should be right. as far as Christ's words and the confection of that sacrament. Right. That we have that, you know. Yeah. That. And I think the, the path to get there is to do what Guardini is saying here, is acknowledging the, the power of God's word, you know, both in the proclamation of it and the Mass, but uh, now in the, the canon itself, and in particular the words of consecration. James, I see you have a, your hand come up. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think going back to your commentary about the foundation of the new creation, mm -hmm. maybe in the Eastern liturgies, um, you see this a little bit more explicitly, mm -hmm. but it's present in the Western liturgical tradition also, and that is the idea of a realized eschatology, that mm -hmm. in the celebration of the liturgy, right. that the kingdom actually does become present right. in an anticipatory way. Mm -hmm. So that the foundation of the new creation, it really is the new heavens and the new earth. It's the eschaton kind of breaking in to time mm -hmm. within the context of the celebration of the liturgy. And then, you know, drawing us into that 
and, and we're creating that in the process. So the you know the beginning words of the you know liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, you know, blessed be the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's right at the very beginning that we're entering into this into this uh, future reality. Right. And, you know, I think Guardini has been trying to reintroduce that, even, you know, from crossing the threshold into the church itself all the way, you know, through the Mass is what he's trying to do here to, you know, open our eyes to the gift that, that God has given us. And, uh, you know, I think as, as long as it's taken for things to be dismantled or the sense of all these things to be lost, it's probably going to take longer for us to, to regain it. And, and so, you know, we start in a small way here today. Where did I leave off? Does, can anybody remember? Here again. Okay. Here again, something happens to the scriptural word, which does not happen to the epistle or gospel, to the paternoster or the praises of the Gloria. There God's biblical words are read, proclaimed, and heard. Priests and people make them their own and pass them back as prayer to God. Here the word becomes the living present. What was once spoken by Christ is spoken anew, not as a new word issuing from the hour and consequently passing away with it, but as the old, Christ-spoken word renewed and become part of this hour. The memorial does not consist in the congregation's remembering what the Lord once spoke to his apostles, but in making his words alive and concretely effective. And so sacrament makes present what it signifies. There's something extraordinary taking place here that we're not just remembering something or even reenacting uh, uh, what took place 2,000 years ago, that mystically we are participating in the gift of the Eucharist itself. And it has, uh, James had mentioned just a little while ago that there is this eschatological element of it, that we are participating at that moment in the, the liturgy of the kingdom. And uh, again, I think Guardini is trying to open our eyes uh, to that reality, that in some sense we've banalized the, the liturgy. You know, there is a sense where in trying to make things accessible or understandable to people that we can strip it down and water it down. I think that's what's taking place. You know, priests were often dissatisfied with the collects of the mass from the past translation. Often they seem to say nothing of substance whatsoever. And the newer translation is a little bit better, but not, not you know, in this extraordinary, in this extraordinary way. And, uh, so, you know, that's always the danger, I think, that uh, the liturgy can become self-focused. And that's what took place after the council. You know, this is experimentation that took place. It became more about the community and satisfying a kind of emotional need to the shift and the music and uh, even the architecture itself. Everything became sort of centered on the, you know, the horizontal and a loss of the sense of what was transcendent there in the Mass. And so, uh, you know, the focus was much more on the congregation, and, and with that came a loss 
uh, the presence of God and what was taking place at the altar, a loss of the sense of mystery, but also the loss of the sense of the Mass being sacrificial, that the, the grace and the power of the Mass flows to us from the cross itself, that we are, as it were, at the foot of Calvary. And so to, to banalize that experience, to, to really strip it down and make it simply about ourselves, we are losing sight of, of the very mystery of our, of our redemption, that we lose sight of Christ and the sufferings of the cross. And we've seen a gradual movement over time, you know, in the architectures I've mentioned, but the removal of the corpus from the, of, of the cross, uh, the removal of statuary often, the, the tabernacle, the Blessed Sacrament being moved off sometimes to a different room altogether. And so the going into church one is filled not with a sense of the presence of God and the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, but rather a sense of absence. Uh, that, and we see that in the faith life of, of so many Catholics. You know, a void was created uh, in regards to, to piety when this took place, uh, because it wasn't only with the Mass that we see this happening, but it was with so many other aspects of our, our piety, and that, you know, whether it would be no, novenas or uh, the rosary or other devotions, you know, so, so many uh, went by the, the wayside. And uh, with this came uh, a deep impoverishment uh, I think uh, of the of the faithful. It was it really was like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and uh, with it we've been we've been greatly diminished. And we see what's going on within the life of the church now. Uh, you know, a profound sense of division already exists within the life of the church. So much so that some people say that, you know, as a matter of fact, there's already a kind of schism that exists within the church just by the nature and the reality of what people say they believe or don't, don't believe. And so we, we find ourselves in a rather serious set of circumstances here, not to overly dramatize things, but I think it makes it even more significant of what, why we need to do what Guardini is speaking of here, that we don't lose what God has in, entrusted to us and that we don't neglect our responsibility in receiving his gifts and embracing them in the way that he wanted, wants them to be embraced. Father, that's always been difficult for me because we go to Mass to reenact the Last Supper mm -hmm. and we have the Blessed Sacrament that's not the central part of the church, but it's to one side. Mm -hmm. And then in doing that, then we also have the priest facing like they're saying this to the, to the con congregants. And we're all supposed to be there to, to go through this Last Supper event together with the priest and all of us together praying to God. But there we have the priest at the altar as though he's saying something to the people. And all of the people, including the priest, should be together praying to God. And that's, that's such a disjunction in my mind because I, rem I go back a long time. I was in the days when we had the, the 
the priests and the bishop coming, and we had the the beautiful one feast of Corpus Christi, right. all of those yeah. events that mm -hmm. are gone now. Mm -hmm. And but it's to me there's a disjunction in the fact that the priest should be leading us like he was years ago. <clears throat> I don't care if he's his back is to us, but he should be the leader, and he's saying the Mass. But the Mass, we should all be there, not not watching the priest, or watching us, but he, he along with the congregants, should be in firm union with praying to God. Right. And yeah. there's the Blessed Sacrament to one side, <laughs> It just, even to me, as a an older person that went through the altar railing and the communion given to the communicants at the altar railing, then they wipe out the altar railing. They just get rid of all these fundamentals that, to me, were so necessary. Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to dispute any of that. You know, my experience has only been with you know, I was asked when I was ordained, it's only been with the Novus Ordo. But my experience has been very limited to seminary and to the oratory. And I think it can be celebrated reverently. You know, not with a focus on the priest and, you know, on, on himself, but on that worship of God. It can be celebrated very beautifully. And uh, I think it is, though, when it becomes sort of, you know, uh, this entertainment rather than worship is when things begin to, to break down. And, you know, there were all, again, all those things that I think that you mentioned that helped foster that sense of unity of, of worship. But, the, the, you know, the breakdown of that and the, the speed with which it broke down also communicates something to us as well. You know, that something was going on within the church and took place within the church that allowed that to happen. And so even though these things existed and they're beautiful and that we can look back at them, we have to be careful of simply falling into a kind of nostalgia that, it, you know, if you know, we are going to look at the liturgy and talk about it in this way, I think we have to look at our own understanding of it uh, and you know, follow, you know, what the council was leading us to. That there were many who participated in that, but not with the sense that, that you describe now. You know, with this sense of what was going on at the altar and, you know, of being united in worship with the priest. And again, the fact that that could break down so radically within a, a generation of time tells us that there was something lacking in the, the catechesis already or something that was going on within the culture of the church that had weakened it to such an extent that there could be such a movement and a movement that could continue, could continue this long and do this much damage. Yes, in the back first, yes. What was the rationale given for moving the tabernacle off to one side? Nothing that I've ever heard that makes any sense whatsoever, I mean, I do actually know the answer to this. Okay. <laughs> you, have to, you have to do the Horshack 
Ooh, no. ooh, ooh. I, I only know this because I was speaking to an art and architecture professor in Rome, and uh, he, he's very, very, very clever, and, and he lives in Rome, and this is what he studies and does with his life. And so um, we were actually talking about this, and he said um, we were going into all of these old basilicas in Rome, and something that's very significant and very interesting is that these are all basilicas that were built, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, well before the council, and uh, they have, blood, you know, chapels or altars of the Blessed Sacrament to the side. And everyone's like, wait, but that looks really old, but it's on the side, so that doesn't make sense, because we're all under the impression that this is a very new thing, you know? And he said that actually, that's how it was from the beginning, was that the tabernacle was off to the side. And the reason for that is that they wanted, they were afraid that there would be confusion in the people, that they wouldn't understand the significance of the moment of consecration, because they're like, but Jesus is already there. And then, so they wanted there to be this, like, Jesus in reserve, and then a profound moment of Jesus entering in at the consecration. Then the Protestant Reformation happens. And people don't believe in the real presence anymore. So the Catholic Church says, okay, how can we architecturally say what we believe by putting the Eucharist at the center of the church? So it was a response to the Protestant Reformation that these altars were now erected in the center of the churches to have every single person who came in, and the Baldacinos, you know, were put there. Because most of Baldacinos in these basilicas are additions. These are not originals at all. And uh, so you would come in, you would see the Baldacchino, Jesus, that's what's there, that's the most important thing. So that the return to the side altar <laughs> was actually a reformation of post, but the, the, the problem is, is that we haven't, I mean, the, the idea was the Catholic Church won the, the counter-reformation, I mean, that's sort of like the jury's out on history that like, they, they got it. So they thought they could move it to the side, and it was like, no, actually, this has like shaken the faith of even Catholics and the real presence. We should be sending here, but they thought like the time is up now, and we can move it back to the side. So anyway, right. yeah, I remember Quartini has said something about that within this text already that we wouldn't lose sight of the moment in time uh, that we enter into the the mystery. Of the Eucharist, and there's you know been some concern even about perpetual adoration, that we wouldn't get so used to it again that it would become a common thing for us, and so we have to be very careful even here at the oratory having perpetual adoration, that it doesn't diminish our uh, entering into the Mass, and make us lo lose a sense of the extraordinary nature of that mo moment for us, and. Uh, so I could see what's being saying, but the problem is, is that there has been a loss of the sense of that uh, reality for us, and it's really the adoration that's enlivening that again, I think, for the faithful. And so, having the tabernacle in the center, as well as having, you know, frequent Eucharistic adoration, is, you know, gradually enlivening the faith of both, you know, priest and and laity. Yes. So, uh, <coughs> as a person who grew up in the church post all these changes being made. Um, when I first heard that uh, the priest uh, would pray the consecration with the back turned, mm -hmm. it made complete sense to me, like mm -hmm. a captain of a ship, mm -hmm. you know, um, leading 
everyone in that prayer and that miracle that was happening in front of everyone. Um, and just in my experience um, as an adult in the faith now, uh, for the last few years, I haven't really had a parish. I have just like whatever church hits my the time that I can go to mass, like I'll go to, or, or that you know I enjoy the contemporary at this one, you know, contemporary music at this one, and yada yada. And um, as of late, you know, my heart's just been craving like uh, consistency. Um, you know, just I want to be able to go into any church and just you know know what I'm going to get. You know. Um, have more like structure or you know because as you said like the changes in the way you know churches are built and, and all of those things and um, yeah I think that like my eyes have been open to it tonight um, so I think that has played a role in my own like spiritual like um, I don't know roller coaster or, or whatnot is you know the one place I want to go to you know get that you know, um, sense of peace, you know, I could easily have 10 different experiences in a 20 mile radius, um, by going to dip, you know, different churches. And so, um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to share that. Are you a native Pittsburgher? No. Okay. I'm Cause you, you're the first one who's ever said yada yada. In <laughs> <experience>. <laughs> <laughs> For us, what would it be, Yinza Yinza or something like that? <laughs> you know, you know everything that everybody's saying. I think you know I, you know, have no dispute with. Um, but again, I think we do have to be careful of not falling back into a, simply a kind of nostalgia. I think what we see, you know, is a lot of anger, certainly that is associated with this too. Discussions of. Uh, of liturgy and you know partly it's because people see what has been lost and also they see what is going on in so many parts of the church and so often the the feelings of anger are, are well founded because this is what they love um, but uh, I think we have to do the hard work I think of educating ourselves in order that it might we might embrace that reality fully you know again it can be something that we, we simply embrace out of that anger. And I don't think that ever bears much much fruit in a person's life. I think it's, that it's much much different to make a choice to enter into that, to embrace that uh, with a kind of clarity of understanding. Because again, uh, I think we're, we fail to ask ourselves, the, we're failing to ask ourselves the question why it took place. You know, what, why there was this radical shift that, that took place and took place so swiftly. Uh, you know, when you, we have Guardini writing something like this, and yet within, you know, another generation, we, we see the radical changes take place. What, what allowed that to happen? What, and what made it, allowed it to emerge? Um, because I, I don't think simply by, you know, going back to the celebration of the liturgy as it was, is going to solve all the problems within the life of, of the church, I think we, you know, that would be a bit naive on our, our part. That might be certainly the, the centerpiece or uh, uh, of one of the things that we would, would do, but certainly the challenges facing the church are, are, are great. And, you know, one of the groups that we have here is on the 
fathers of the church, the Desert Fathers and the spiritual tradition of the church, and we're no more well-formed in the understanding of the spiritual tradition and the forming of the mind and the heart in order that we might enter into this reality fully than we are in the, our formation of the understanding of the liturgy. And so I think we have to look at the, our life as, as Catholic Christians as a whole and our being immersed in the fullness of that tradition. Okay, where, where are we located now? We are about? Okay, it's not as long one. We're, we're gonna make it through here swiftly. <laughs> we are about to anticipate, but the point to be discussed in detail later is also all important that it can be bare repetition. What Jesus accomplished by these words differed from all other proofs of his divine omnipotence. Not only was he summoning the powers of creation to the service of the kingdom of God, here as in, creation, here as in the incarnation and the resurrection, he was laying the foundations of a new creation. These words are the equals of those which once brought about the universe into existence. But it was the Lord's pleasure to permit them their creative task not only once, the evening he spoke to them, but from henceforth forever, as St. Paul says, until he comes. They are meant to ring out ever and again in the course of history, accomplishing each time what they first effected. To this end, Christ gave them to his followers with the command, as often as you shall do these, these things, you shall do them in remembrance of me. And to me, this is the, the most important paragraph of, of the meditation, that it opens us up to the extraordinary nature of the word spoken, uh, that a new creation uh, comes into being, that we are made something new in and through uh, what, what it is that we receive at the holy altar. And for us, that should be the, the most important reality that we seek to embrace and allow, and allow to bear as much fruit in our lives, that we could be participating in the most beautiful of liturgies, and yet our hearts can be as hard as rock, and you know, the, what we receive may not bear any fruit. And so, you know, all of our spiritual life must, you know, prepare us for this reality and open our minds and our hearts to enter into it as fully as we can. You know, Cassian's writings in the conference, you know, have as their immediate end purity of heart. And it's only purity of, and purity of heart uh, when we receive the Holy Eucharist that we can see the full uh, fruit uh, you know, born within our hearts, and we, we don't want to lose sight of that. Therefore, when the priest utters the words, they are not merely reported, they rise and create. Obviously, at this point, we do not simply hear a man talking. The priest pronounces the words, certainly, but they are not his. He is only their bearer. And he does not bear them by reason of his personal faith or piety or moral strength, but by the means of his office through which he executes the Lord's directions. The true speaker remains Christ. He alone can speak thus. The priest merely lends the Lord his voice, mind, will, freedom, playing a role similar to that of the baptismal water. For the new birth is not brought about by its natural cleansing qualities, but by the power of Christ, 
It is Christ who baptizes, just as here it is Christ who speaks. And here I think we can say that there is an issue when the, the priest does, when his personality does take center stage. And uh, I think it leads then uh, the congregation as a whole to lose sight of, of Christ himself. And the same is true in the preaching of the word. And we spoke about that, you know, that there should be a kind of solemnity in the proclamation of it, but also in the preaching of the word. Uh, one of the things that we used to say to servers is that the best servers are invisible at mass. You don't see them at all because they're doing, their, doing what they're supposed to be doing so well that they don't become a distraction to the congregation. And one would say that would be even more true, I think, uh, of the priest, that in, in a sense he would be transparent, if anything, uh, to the, the presence of Christ. That uh, even though Gordini says here that the, the consecration isn't dependent upon his piety or the, his, uh, his morality, that the more transparent he is to Christ, the holier is, he is, the more he magnifies what is taking place there. And so when you have someone like a John Vianney or a Philip Neri saying, saying Mass, there's, or a Padre Pio, you know, that you know, he could say a three-hour Mass, and you know, for those in attendance, it was nothing because it was a saint, someone who was godly, who had been transformed in such a powerful way that it was as if Christ himself were celebrating the Mass, which in reality he is, but it is that Padre Pio made that ever so clear. And this is why I can say that, you know, what I've experienced in the celebration of the Novus Ordo, that is true too. You know, when it is celebrated reverently and when the priest is living a holy life and loves the Eucharist, that becomes manifest in a very powerful way in the Novus Ordo as well. I mean, we are so used, though, I think, to it being diminished through the antics that have taken place and how bizarre things can become at times uh, uh, in the experimentation that has taken place that perhaps we've lost, we lose sight of that, that, you know, that it, it's not only possible for it to be celebrated reverently, but to be done so on a regular basis. Our own attitude should be in keeping with this. It is not merely a question of pious listening and acceptance, nor is it one of con consummation in the literal sense of the word. The first would be too little, the second definitely too much. The deacon's interjection in the midst of the holy sentences gives us the right cue, mysterium fide. The call proclaims the unfolding of the inmost earnestness, the supreme love of God, summoning us to muster all the readiness and power of our faith in order to participate in them. And so if this is lacking, if what Gordini is talking about in this last paragraph is la lacking, then the, the liturgy might be celebrated beautifully, but it still might fall on a, on a hardened heart. That we, we still have to muster everything that we possibly can within us to embrace the, the fullness of our life in Christ. And we can still receive as unworthily at an extraordinary form mass as we do at the ordinary form. Any comments on this? Yes, Father. I really don't understand this last paragraph at all. The second sentence, it is not merely a question of pious listening and acceptance, nor is it one of consummation, a literal sense of the word, 
the first would be too little, the second definitely too much. Could you uh, yeah. explain I, that? I did find that a little bit confusing myself too because we do see it as a consummation between Christ the heavenly bridegroom and his bride the church. So we do see that uh, in the literal sense of the word, you know, uh, uh, unless he's thinking of an, uh, you know, an, an overly uh, physicalist uh, way of, of viewing the species. You know, it's the only uh, thing I that I can think of. I didn't even know what he was referring to, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. Yeah. Is, is it po I, I guess this is translated from German. Is it possible? Yeah, right. Translator it could be something lost in the translation. But, you know, s saying that it's more than pious listening, that, you know, that our participation has to be something far greater than that. But it's not, it's, we are not the ones uh, bringing about the consecration. It is Christ himself and his word that is doing that. So I think that's how I would interpret that, that, you know, that we, it's, it's not we ourselves that are doing this of our own power, our own strength, that we are participating in something far greater than ourselves. And so it's not a mere act of piety where we don't participate at all, nor is it at the other extreme where we see ourselves as God or that we are the source of the liturgy or the effectiveness of the liturgy depends upon us and what we're doing. And I think that we've swung in that opposite direction where we've you know, made ourselves a kind of idol that we worship and the, the, the effectiveness of the liturgy is you know, depends on how well the folk group sings that day or the emotion that is elicited rather than the reality that, is, that takes place at the altar by the power of God's word. So, you know, it's important for us to talk about all the things that we have, but I don't want to lose sight of the central point that he's making. And I think it do he does emphasize it, albeit in a confusing way, in this last paragraph, that we have to understand what makes the consecration possible for us and that it is the, the word of God itself. And it's not just these words spoken by uh, a priest abstracted from the reality of Christ himself or from Calvary. You know, that these are, are, the, are the words of, this is Christ himself acting in and through one he's ordained for that purpose. It is Christ himself who's speaking them and that's where they receive their, their power. And so, you know, for priests, that becomes a very humbling reality that we are not to put ourselves forward in this kind of way that it becomes, uh, uh, you know, that we're, you know, putting forward our personality to the congregation or trying to entertain. We're ordained for a purpose. And I think this is what we've lost sight of that you know, priests are ordained for a very specific purpose, you know, to offer, offer the Mass, to offer, administer the sacraments, and to preach, and to pray. And you know, when you know, they become everything but that, the church is diminished. And to, to lose you know, the priesthood and diminish the priesthood is really to weaken the, the church in a profound way. Bob, what yes. was the origin of the term altar Christus? Because you're like a vehicle. But where did that emanate from, that term? Uh, yeah. Off the top of my head, 
I'd have to look that up myself in terms of its that, origin. That's really, in essence, what you're speaking of. Right. The, the, uh, the priest is an, another Christ, and all priests are that. You know, the, the work that has recently come out called Insignia Jesu uh, emphasizes that in, in large measure, and drawing priests back to, uh, it's a work that, that came out of Silverstream Priory in Ireland. Uh, sort of Christ speaking to a priest in particular, but drawing, you know, calling his priest back to him, you know, to draw as close to him as John did in laying upon his chest at the Last Supper, and to draw close to him in particular through adoration, that their love might be inflamed for the Lord, and that they might be strengthened in particular in their identity as priests. And, you know, in speaking to priests in my own day, you know, I and here in Pittsburgh, that would be the thing that I would emphasize as well. You know, n not to pay attention to, or to lose yourself in everything that is going on and the chaos that is that it has caused. You know, because it's it's demoralizing some very good priests. You know, everything that's been going on within the life of the church. It's not as though we are called to ignore it, but we don't want it to allow. We don't want to allow it to allow it to make us lose sense of our, our identity as priest and to lose our, our focus. You know, if anything, it should intensify it. As we see the priesthood and how deeply it has been diminished, it should lead us into a fuller embrace of what we've been ordained to do. And so there should be a setting aside of anything that is extraneous to that reality in my mind. You know, it should be the administration of the sacraments, preaching, and prayer. You know, all the administrative stuff, everything else can be done by somebody, somebody else. But the priest has to be immersed fully in that, that identity. And I think that's, only, that's the only way that you're going to find the, the priesthood being renewed. If they do what is being articulated in that work in Senior Jesu, if they draw close to the heart of Christ, and in particular in and through the Eucharist, that they have the Eucharist as the center of their life and adoration, lingering before adoration as a way of deepening, deepening their love for their priesthood and for the Eucharist that they've been called to celebrate. Was the homily always right after the gospel? Because to me, that seems like where there's always a break and where you see the personality of the priest rather than the in persona Christi part of it. It just seems like it disrupts the flow. I'm wondering if there was ever a time when the homily was after the Mass. Not to my knowledge, but it shouldn't disrupt the flow. In fact, if anything, it should inflame the heart of those who are worshiping to prepare themselves to receive what they are about to receive. The homily has always been something different than a sermon. You know, the sermon is something, you know, sort of like uh, an exegetical presentation of a particular scripture passage, usually you know, longer and more technical. A homily is, is really meant to be, you know, have a kind of, uh, of brevity to it, but that uh, uh, fills the, the, the mind and the heart of those who are listening uh, with a fervor for God, that it touches them at the depths of their religiosity in order that they might respond more fully in that moment. And so it should not be a disruption it should be a part of the flow of the liturgy that flows out of the proclamation 
of the word. And if anything, it should deepen what has just been proclaimed. I think what has made it, what, what you describe is where, you know, the, the priest does, the personality of the priest does step forward too much. It's not as though the personal identity has to be set aside. That can enrich, you know, the preaching, of course, you know, but so often it becomes an act, you know, more than, you know, than uh, the proclamation of the word. Yes. Well, the mass is the greatest prayer we have. <laughs> right. But the mass itself, the it doesn't begin until that offertory after the gospel. You know, we have we have the the mass the the years ago the catechumens were not allowed to come in. They had to leave the church once the offertory started. They were learning about the church, about the about Christ and and what he was talking about at the Last Supper. So they would come in and they could stay until the offertory because the offertory and the consecration is the main part of the Mass. Right. They, they, they were being prepared to enter into the mystery of the church. But I wouldn't, I don't think we want to draw as sharp of a distinction between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, that one does lead into the other and prepare us to enter into the, you know, Christ completes mm -hmm. what had already existed within uh, the, the synagogue and the temple, you know, this practice of the proclamation of the Word and preaching about it. And what we find in the liturgy of the Eucharist is our receiving of that word, not simply through hearing, but receiving it as our food and drink and being transformed by that. We receive the word of God made flesh. And, you know, so, you know, I think I, I would be wary of, you know, making such a sharp distinction. You know, the, they were removed for a particular reason, is because they were being prepared so that they might be able to enter into the deepest mystery of the church's worship without, with an adequate understanding of what, what it is that they were doing. How late can you get to a mass and still satisfy your Sunday <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really the unspoken There is actually no canon law statement that says, you know, you have to be at Mass by a certain time to fulfill that obligation. But in light of everything that we've been reading, one would say you should probably get there as early as you can, a half an hour early to prepare yourself and stay late to offer thanksgiving for what you've received. So the, <laughs> you're a troublemaker, you know that? <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was thinking, you know, we receive then Holy Communion and we're filled with the body and blood of Christ. And, and then to me, um, observing the priest then, would you say like cleansing the vessels or however you say it, you know, some, I, you know, I've been to many different churches and observe the re care and reverence with, with which that is done mm -hmm. kind of just extends the whole holy holiness of liturgy of the Eucharist, I think, you know, because I've been to, um, <clears throat> to priests in, I mean, to masses in another diocese where the, I guess you just 
quickly say Eucharistic ministers mm -hmm. would take all the vessels out, you know, to the um, sacristy, the sacristy and, right. and clean them themselves, and the right. priest didn't even do it. Or I've seen it done very hastily. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying I think when it is done reverently, it's yeah. beautiful. Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems... Well, I think a lot of things like that heighten our sense of, of reverence. Yeah. You know, to see a certain priest uh, even to uh, unveil and then veil the chalice, uh, the purification of the chalice following and how they do that, the, the focus on it, I think adds to our sense of, of reverence and you know our understanding of the real presence of Christ, the care that the priest then gives in the purification of, of the chalice and the ciborium, and uh, even the way he holds his hands. You know, you often see priests, you know, once they've touched the, the host that they will, you know, keep their fingers together so as no particle would, would fall. And, uh, and so I think even, you know, as priests, younger priests sort of add these aspects of the celebration of Mass back in, I think it's, it can be helpful, as well as saying something like the First Eucharistic Prayer more regularly, too. You know, that there's something about saying, you know, this ancient uh, Eucharistic Prayer that then heightens, I think, the experience, you know, that there's not this quick move to the consecration, but it, there's this preparation uh, through the the, beauty, the, the beauty, beauty of the canon itself that people are exposed to on a somewhat regular basis. So, you know, I think all those things can, can help and add to the beauty of it. Any other thoughts? Yes? The cadence or the how the prayers are being said by the priest can make a big difference in the sense of reverence. I know I've been to a <coughs> church outline and it's like a mass on speed dial. From the beginning of mass to the complete end of mass, it's 40 minutes and you're out the door. I mean, the prayers are just rattled through, the homilies rattled through, and you come, you just come away with like, very unfulfilled. And in that church, interestingly, <coughs> it's one of like a modern building, but they have the tabernacle clear off to the side. And so when people come in or leave, they're genuflecting uh, like to the main altar, but yet the tabernacle is off to the side. And it's sort of like, it makes the congregation like you're not even aware that Christ is present. So the way the Mass is said and the, the prayers make such a difference. Yeah, you know, all these are issues of you know, formation and education. But I think if we were even to go f further than that, that we, we would say that there, this, there's a spiritual wound that the, the church bears as a whole. And our response, you know, uh, you know, there's so much arguing and fighting that goes on today that does absolutely nothing. In fact, it worsens the problem. I think our response to what we see should be greater and greater personal conversion and repentance, and then to pray for priests and to do penance for priests, and uh, even have masses offered 
for, for priests. You know, we have a holy hour here every month uh, for priests, and uh, we have the daughters of St. Philip Neri who pray uh, a holy hour a day for priests. These are the things that we should, I think, be focused upon in regards to the renewal of the church and, and the priesthood. That, you know, the problems that you mention, you know, have a root again, and you know, there's an historical narrative here that we want to consider a historical reality that has brought these things about, and there's been a lack of, you know, formation. Many priests haven't had the witness and formation of, you know, pastors over the course of a year. We've talked about this before. It used to take priests 25 years before they could be made a pastor. Now some of them are being made pastor a couple years after ordination. But they would have the 25 years to witness, you know, a good holy priest, you know, living the life as well as guiding and directing his parish. And so, you know, the, 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 the wounds, you know, that have been inflicted on the priesthood and inflicted upon the faithful, you know, and, you know, over the generations are going to take a lot to, to be healed. And our response to that, again, has to be conversion, radical conversion. And it's one thing for us to have groups and to talk about these things, you know, but, you know, what is better spent is an hour in the chapel. On, on our knees. And so if you ha had to pick between coming to this group and doing an hour of adoration, I would want you to do that hour of adoration. Yes? Um, I haven't, my understanding of penances was always like a personal thing, but you can do penances for other people. That's yeah, you know, I think that's part of our being part of the, the body of Christ. You know, certainly in marriage we see the, the two become one. And, you know, as the, you know, they enter into the spiritual life and they grow and deepen in their prayer, they, they strengthen the, the, the body as a whole, as it, as it were. They're no longer two individuals, but one in Christ. And so spouses praying for each other, they strengthen each other as well as the, the marriage. They become soulmates in the most radical sense of the word. But we, are also uh, one body in Christ. And so, you know, wherever the church is strengthened or wherever someone's leading a holy life, it's going to lift the church up. Wherever, you know, someone turns away from Christ and treats the Eucharist with irreverence, that's going to diminish the body. And so we are called, and this is something that we've lost, to embrace a life of reparation to engage in the spiritual life fully in order to re repair, to help bring about a healing of the church by our full, fuller response to the grace of God. But it really takes a sense of uh, understanding of the incarnation and the church uh, and the sacramental life to get that. You know, we have to understand that we are, the church is the body of Christ. And so the more fully that we respond, that we are going to s strengthen and bring about healing there. And so our, our fasting and our doing vigils, our doing holy hours for priests can radically strengthen and bring healing to the priesthood or bring healing to those who've been wounded by the, the church. You know, we, we can never be detached in a sense 
from what is going on within the life of the church or see ourselves as an, there is no such thing as an individual Christian. You know, uh, we're always a part of this larger reality and so responsible for the spiritual well-being of each other as we are responsible for our own spiritual well-being. First Fridays, first Saturdays, right. preparation. That's right. But that's, again, another devotion that I think has sort of fallen by the wayside. These are the things that I think that we would want to renew in order to, to strengthen the church. You know, our understanding, these things are important, but how we are living that faith out is even more important. That is part you know, of living. That's right. I mean, someone, un, you know, uned, uneducated, but who has this deep faith in the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament and who's on their knees praying is going to enrich and strengthen the the church far more than someone who might be able to articulate it well, but isn't living the life. There's that old story of, uh, you know, a guy who really sort of mocked the church and the pious practices and uh, his, his maid would go to mass every single day and he thought this was the most ridiculous waste of time. And then one day there was a, a great s snowstorm that overtook, shut down the city and he's looking out the window of his of the front of his house and he sees this person on their hands and knees crawling up the the, the road up the hillside uh, to get to the top and he's you know who's that cr you know crazy person crawling up on their hands and knees through the snow and it was his maid who was making her way to the, the parish church to go to mass you know, that there was such a, a love for the Mass there. And that, that's the thing that brings about his conversion. He sees the depth of her faith, you know, that seems to be a kind of madness. And that's, I think, something that we've lost, you know, a kind of, of holy madness, of, if you will, of, of a life given over fully to Christ that is, does manifest to this, the world, that Christ is the center of all things for us. We shouldn't fit in. We should be a peculiar people. We should be oddballs, not doing and saying stupid things. But I think in the, in the eyes of the world, we should be living a kind of life that isn't in lockstep with what is going on around us. And so who bears witness you know, to this kind of faith in, in our day? You, know, you, can, you, you can barely distinguish a, a Catholic from a non-Catholic. Years ago, you would never pass a church without making a visit, right? Because that was God's house, right. or of crossing yourself, knowing that you're yeah. you're it, close it, to the. It just that doesn't happen today, right? Any more smart aleck remarks, or should we? <laughs> yada yada yada. <laughs> okay, won't we? <laughs> We stand together and we'll pray the prayer of St. Philip. And then after our final hymn, we also have sweets and coffee at the side table. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea, and now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, 
Look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, rule thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives, steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high, keep us off the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. On the back table, there is a postcard for the next event. It's uh, t uh, the topic, and then also a card for the First Friday Vigil, uh, which is on the first Friday of the month, and it's a three-hour vigil before the Blessed Sacrament. But this is actually on the third Saturday next month. What is this group? Oh, yes. That's right, because the... How does first that work Friday in? First Friday and second Saturday fall back to back, so we right. push everything off by a week. So first Friday That's is right. June 7th, every once in a while. will be June 15th. All right, every once in a while we get messed up. Okay, so let's sing together the Regina Chaley. <laughs> Regina Chaley, Lectorin, Alleluia. Hallelujah, ora. Oh,